Well, I'm secure enough um, in myself to admit that I am a sucker for a good sales pitch. I always have been. I get sucked into pyramid schemes pretty easily, and it's just something that I've had to learn to deal with over the years. Um, sometimes this can be a little bit more dangerous than other times, and so once I was sitting in chapel and uh, at seminary, and the guest speaker that day was a recruiter for the U.S. Navy. They wanted chaplains to join the Navy, and so... Um, I can't think of anything worse than being a Navy chaplain. No, I'm just joking. I know the Rogerses are here. It's a wonderful, honorable profession. But anyway, I, I thought, well, this sales pitch isn't going to work on me. I don't want to go into the military. But this guy did such a great job. He was such a good preacher. And he was there in his white uniform, you know, the ones that they never wear except on movies. Um, and he, but he looked so good, and he was, like, ruggedly good-looking, and he was funny. And, and I, even when I met him afterwards, he just smelled good. And um, I don't know, there was just like this whole package deal where I was like, man, he told these cool stories about sharing the gospel with people in submarines off the coast of Iraq or whatever, and, and being in exotic places and starting Bible studies and seeing the world and ministering to people as they had lost friends in, in war. And I was just like, man, that's where the Lord wants me to go. And so I was, you know, some of the more gullible students flocked to him afterwards, and I was among them. Um, like a moth to the flame, and, and the recruiters were there, and they were taking, you know, social security numbers and that kind of thing, for the sign-ups for the Navy, and I was just completely in, except when I got there, everything was working fine until he noticed something with my accent, and, and I was like, oh, no, I'm not a U.S. citizen. Oh, <laughs> he was like, well, then you can't join the Navy, um, and then he kind of lost interest in me, but some of these guys actually ended up, at least one that I know, ended up being, um, being a chaplain. And so what he told me is that as soon as you sign on the dotted line, you never see those recruiters again. You don't see smiling faces. Um, they don't smell good, the people that you're around from then on. It's just mean people yelling at you and cursing at you, getting you to do stuff until you're fit enough. And uh, it wasn't as glamorous as it at first sounded. Um, and I had another friend who was in seminary with me who was also in the Navy. So I asked him about that. I said, is that how they got you to join the Navy? He was a Navy SEAL. So he was in the SEAL teams. And he said, no. He said, when they recruit for the SEAL teams, they do the exact opposite. They don't tell you it's going to be wonderful and you're going to enjoy it. They tell you it's going to be impossible, it's going to be miserable, you're not even going to make it. If you do make it, there's a, you know, a, this large chance that you're going to die in combat and all this kind of stuff. And 90% uh, of SEALs get divorced. And I mean, they just give you this whole thing. And then if you still want to go through all of that grueling, then um, you know, you're, you're welcome to apply. So let me ask you this. Just based on that... Which do you think, which recruiting method do you think produces the most committed warriors? Yeah, the SEAL recruiting method. The one where they're, they're telling you how hard it is, how difficult it's going to be, and you're still committed to pursue that. And this is exactly what we see Jesus doing as he describes what it means to be a disciple of his. So turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, and we'll compare the way Jesus recruits people versus the way a lot of our Christian culture sometimes tries to recruit, recruit people to Christianity. Last week, Jesus, we could say, Googled himself, you know, asking the disciples, who did the crowds say that I am? Kind of like when you Google yourself and you see what's out there on my name, you know. And, and the most popular, the, the, the kind of the site that came back with the most hits was that he is a, some, one of the prophets, 
of old that has risen from the dead and come back. And then uh, Jesus narrowed that to the disciples themselves and said, but who do you say that I am? And at that point, Peter confesses, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the chosen anointed one of God. And then Jesus told them not to spread that message. Don't tell anyone that. And we thought that's kind of a strange thing. Finally, somebody realizes Jesus is the Messiah. And then he says, don't tell anyone. And we saw that the reason was because that's an incomplete message. Jesus being the Messiah was not a saving message yet. They were expecting a Messiah to come, but they had in mind a Messiah who would be conquering and victorious, a political Messiah. And so Jesus said, no, wait, first I need to suffer and die and rise again. And so we saw that's the saving message. And when that happened, then when he did rise again, we looked at passages, we said, now you go tell the whole world. So we saw that it's not, it's not the office of Christ the position of being the Messiah that saves us. It's the work of the Messiah that saves us. So it's the person of who Jesus is and his finished work on the cross. So that's where we find ourselves in the context. And now with that ringing in their ears, this idea that Jesus needs to suffer and die, we read in verse 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And we're going to look at three aspects of a true disciple. This is going to help you know if you are a true disciple. It's going to help you when you recruit others, you know, when you evangelize others to become a disciple. Three aspects of a true disciple to give you assurance and help your evangelism. Firstly, a true disciple must have persistent pursuit of morality. And I'll explain what that means, um, a changed life, a persistent changed life. Secondly, True disciples must have a profitable priority of eternity. They must understand where eternity is compared to life now. And then thirdly, a public profession of Christianity. You may not deny Christ if you're going to be a true disciple. You must have a public profession. So let's look at the first one as we see them in the text unfolding here. Um, a persistent pursuit of morality. In verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, there's many different systems of evangelism, and you can take a course in how to evangelize, how to share the gospel with somebody else so that they can believe it and repent of their sins and become a Christian. And one of the most popular ones that are out there today is known as the Four Spiritual Laws. It's taught all over the place, and it, it teaches you how to lead people to Christ, and it can be used to good effect. But one of the, the, the first step in that is that you say this to the person, God has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's step number one. Now, in a certain sense, that's true. God loves the whole world. That's why he sent his son to die for the world. 
And God does have a wonderful plan, and the plan is the plan of salvation that I'm about to share with you, and so that's true. But it can be misleading if the person doesn't quite understand what you mean by that. And so you say that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It sounds unconditional, but it's not. It's a true statement that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but it is conditional on something which you find in this text. Let me read it again for you. If, there's your condition, anyone would or wants to come after me, let him deny himself, there's the first one, take up his cross daily, there's the second one, and follow me. There's a third one. You see that there's three conditions. So yes, you can, anyone can become a believer and God has this wonderful plan for your life, but there's three conditions. You only get to be a true disciple of Jesus if you do this. Uh, if you, what are these? Uh, if you come after me, uh, deny yourself. So there's the one condition. Denying yourself, taking up your cross. That's a, a willingness to, to die. Um, and follow me. There's a, the willingness to obey. So you need to give up your desires, be willing to die, and obey Jesus, and then you can be a true disciple. And the implication is, and if you don't do those things, if you're not willing to deny your own desires, if you're not willing to die for me, and if you're, you're, you're not willing to um, follow me and be a be obedient to me and let me be your Lord, then you're not a true disciple. So it's conditional. If you don't meet those conditions, God has a horrible plan for your life. Your, your life is going to end in judgment. Now, another problem with the saying God has a wonderful plan for your life is that even if the unbeliever does get saved and they are willing to do those things, and they become a true believer in Jesus, even if that does happen, the phrase a wonderful life is still kind of misleading because what kind of lives do Christians have? Are they always more wonderful than before? It's kind of misleading. The, the very disciples here, hearing this from Jesus, they're being told here, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The word daily means it's a constant thing. It's not a once-off decision. I got baptized, I raised my hand, I threw my pine cone in the fire at youth camp or whatever it was where I crossed the line and said, I'm going to be a Christian. It's not a once-off thing. Daily, you need to take up your cross. Jesus just told his disciples, yes, I'm the Messiah. Don't tell anyone until this happens. I suffer. I die. I rise again. Then you can go and tell them. And now let me tell you, if you're going to come after me and you're going to follow me, you need to be willing to die. That's what it means to take up your cross. We always say, everyone has their cross to bear. I mean, would you like to be married to that guy? Well, everyone has their cross to bear. No, no, no. Being married to somebody is not crucifixion. I mean, sometimes it might feel that way. Um, but No, your cross to bear is not a special needs child or a health condition or a gluten intolerance. That's not your cross to bear. A cross is an instrument of execution. And you need to be willing to be executed for Jesus. And when we live in a free country, that sounds kind of metaphorical to us. But brothers and sisters, you know, throughout history, there have been thousands of Christians 
who were actually executed for being Christian. So this is a very real threat when Jesus says you need to be willing to take up your cross. And you, you can't become a Christian unless you're willing to go through that. Philip and Andrew were two apostles listening to this. They were actually crucified, church history tells us. James was beheaded. You read about that in the book of Acts. Stephen was stoned to death. Peter was imprisoned. He was beaten. And eventually, that part's recorded in Acts, but eventually church history tells us he was crucified. He was crucified upside down. That's a very broad definition of a wonderful plan for your life. So it, it's misleading to tell somebody, oh, everything's going to be wonderful for you. It's not. And there needs to be this persistent daily pursuit of denying your own desires and replacing them with the desires of the things of the Lord. That's not, it's literally, it's not something you can just do once. It's every day. You have to say, today I have to live for the Lord. Your, your security. These are things you have to give up. And then, of course, obedience to the point of discomfort or even death. As I said, this isn't metaphorical. People end up dying. People actually end up dying because they're Christians. The apostle Mark, uh, I mean the disciple Mark, he was dragged to death by horses in Egypt in 64 AD. Barnabas was burned alive in Cyprus, also in 64 AD. Luke, who wrote these very words, he would end up being hanged in Athens in 93 AD. So these people, these disciples, they actually were executed for becoming Christians. Every one of the apostles, in fact, was executed for being a follower of Jesus, except John, who legend tells us he survived being an attempted execution where they threw him into a vat of boiling water. He survived that, and then he was exiled to the island of Patmos, as recorded in the book of Revelation. And this is still happening today. Um... One survey done by Gordon Conwell Seminary uh, estimated 171,000 people are martyred every year in the world for being Christian. 171,000 Christians. I did a funeral for a lady uh, in Egypt who was burned alive when extremist Muslims tried to burn down a house um, to kill a family that had converted from Islam to Christianity, and she was in the home, the family wasn't there, so they burnt down the house when the family was gone. She was the children's babysitter, and she was in that home, and she ended up dying. So I got to conduct the funeral while we were there in Egypt with the family, who I only know through their code names because they were part of the underground church. And they lost their jobs and they had to live like, like beggars. Why? Because they were born Muslim and heard the gospel and chose to take up their cross daily. First Timothy 2.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's First Timothy 2. 12. So being a Christian means death to your desires, death to your 
priorities and dreams if they exclude Christ, and even death, physical death. And if that price is too high, don't call yourself a Christian. If you think, look, I'm fine with being part of this Christianity thing, but not if it's going to cost me my friends, family, job, health, life, don't call yourself a Christian. That's what it means to be a true disciple. So, and you say, Pastor, you're going a little far. Are you saying, if I'm literally not willing to die, I'm not going to heaven? I'm not saying that. Jesus says that in this text. Verse 24, for whoever, the reason I say this to you, for, for whoever would or wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The person who wants to save his life, the person who wants to avoid the cost of Christianity, loses his life. The, the opposite of being saved. The other one is, if you lose your physical life, for my sake, I will save it. Now, just a very important footnote that's also found in this text. I'm not saying you should never wear your seatbelt. You should not eat healthy. You should not take precautions against dying. You should be willing to die. You should be wanting to die. That is your sign that you're a true Christian. No, because Jesus says very carefully in verse 24, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So it's, it's only sin to, to choose security over Christ. It's not sin to just choose security over insecurity, over danger, right? But when you're saying, well, I don't want to do something dangerous for Christ because I want my security in this life, what he's saying is you're mixing up your priorities. You're prioritizing this life and keeping this life and you're forgetting about your eternal life. And anyone who's doing that doesn't get eternal life. I mean, this is probably the most confrontative statement Jesus makes in his entire ministry. And that's just the first point. So a true disciple must have one persistent pursuit of... Oh, did I say morality earlier? I meant mortality. Whatever it says up there. Mortality, okay, good. And morality, of course. You should be striving for sanctification. No, but the, the point there is taking up your cross daily, mortality, putting to death the desires of the flesh, but also being willing to die yourself. Okay, persistent pursuit of mortality. Secondly, a profitable priority of eternity. So this kind of segues into the same thing. Verse 25, he says, For what, what is a profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? And the, the reason Jesus says loses or forfeits, they both mean the same thing, but one is passive and one is active. So to lose your life means it's a, something passive. It's something that happens to you. Somebody takes your life because you're a Christian. Forfeits is if you offer it up. You choose to. It's an active desire, right? And so he's saying here, what does it profit a man if he gains the world but loses his life in the gaining of it, or even forfeits his life in the gaining of it. So there are people who, who work themselves to death to gain the world. And then there's other people who aren't deliberately doing that, but they're so focused on the world that they end up losing their life. So the desire for profit is a normal part of life. Let's just go ahead and say that. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes the desire for profit is in opposition to other desires. So it's okay to want to 
expand your business or get a raise at work or whatever. We've been talking about that in the contentment series we're doing in Philippians, right? Philippians 4. But salvation is a higher desire. And if the two are in opposition, you have to choose salvation. So you have to fix your priorities. Um, verse 25 says, what is it? Profit. So Jesus says, you should want profit. But here you're tr trying to gain the whole world and you're forfeiting yourself. So he doesn't say just forget profit. He's talking about the difference between long-term and short-term gain. So he wants you to profit, but he says it's foolish to try to profit in the short-term, this life, and forfeit the long-term gain, gain in the end. So we all understand this. All of life is com competing desires. Every desire you have is competing with another desire, and you have to put them in priority. So uh, I'll give you an example. There was the gym I used to go to in South Africa was right next to this wonderful, this just absolutely delightful little pastry store named Spriggs. It was this coffee shop, and they made the best cheesecakes. And it was such a picture of heaven and hell right next to each other. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know which one is which for you, but people would come out of the gym having spent, you know, an hour and 40 minutes on a treadmill and, and machines and sauna and whatever it is for their health, for their longevity, for their weight loss, and then they would walk past Spriggs and they'd be like, ooh, cheesecake. And then they would eat the cheesecake and undo all of that. And so, is cheesecake wrong? No. Cheesecake is heaven, in case you were wondering. Um, but... If you have two competing desires, you can have cheesecake, but if your desire is to lose weight, then you can't have cheesecake. Not every time you go to the gym. I mean, that's just silly. So, so there's a higher desire that's competing with a lower desire. So what, what Jesus says here is, yes, you, you want to profit, that's okay, but you have to put your profit of this life below your profit of eternity, and when they're in conflict, when, when they're in conflict, you have to choose eternity. He doesn't say forget it. He says strive for the huge long-term gains rather than the paltry short-term gains. And Paul understands this. You see this in his writings all the time. 2 Corinthians 4.17. This momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's a famous verse. 2 Corinthians 4.17. Momentary light affliction compared to Eternal weight of glory. Philippians 3.8, we've gone through that recently. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, the higher priority of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So I don't mind losing this stuff because of what I gain. Christ. And so what Jesus is saying is, imagine your job was doing well. You're, you started a business and your business did so well that you were able to start another business. And then that one was doing so well that you were able to buy all the competition. And then those were doing so well, you were able to branch into other fields and you were able to buy all of the businesses in the whole world. But in so doing... You neglect what Christ wants you to do and you end up in hell. He says, what's that worth to you? So, whatever it is that's precious to you, you could expand that to be the whole world. 
and it would be nothing compared to an eternity with Christ. And sometimes you have to choose. You see that. You see that in, in different cultures have different manifestations of this, but often it's just whatever the earthly mindset is. I think in our culture it has a lot to do with sport as well. You know, you, you, you can choose between watching sport, playing sport, supporting sport, or serving in the church. And they, they don't always conflict, like on a Tuesday they don't, but, but they do sometimes conflict. And sometimes you just have to choose. And so what people do is they, they instill in their children the priority of sport for, you know, a decade and a half in their life. And the kids do really well at whatever sport that they're doing. And they really excel. And they might even get a scholarship for it. And they go to college and they do more of that sport. And then when they carry on with that, their parents are like, hey, how come you aren't going to um, church now that you're in college? And you kind of want to say to the parents, because I haven't been going to church my whole life. Whenever it comes conflicted with sport that's what you taught me you know where i'm from it's education everything kids must go to the best school and get the best grades so they get into the best colleges so they get the best jobs so they make the best money and so sometimes you have to do that and you have to say no to church along the way and then those kids get those jobs and then the parents are like how come you aren't taking your kids my grandkids to church and the kids are like, well, you taught me what to worship, and now I'm worshiping it. I mean, they don't say that, but that's what's happening. And so Jesus says, you've got to get your priorities right, Joe. What good is it if you have the best job with the best money and the best business and the best sports team and the best everything? Whatever it is for you, your idol might be health, and you're just always, always, always in the gym. Oh, I can't help at a Bible study. I can't do this. I can't serve there because I've got I to stay healthy. Or whatever it is, whatever it is for you, your career. And, and you do all that. And then you die, because you're going to die. Everybody dies. And then your eternity starts. And Jesus says, you've got to get those priorities right. So a true disciple must have a persistent pursuit of mortality and be willing to die for Christ. A true disciple must have a profitable priority of eternity and have their profit right. And thirdly, a public profession of Christianity. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The Son of Man is, of course, referring to Jesus. It's one of his messianic titles. This time when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels, that's talking about the end times when all of history is wrapped up and eternity is about to start. And, and Jesus wants you to be thinking about that eternity. And he says, whoever is ashamed of me in my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed on that day. Ashamed. Ashamed is, we sometimes just use the word embarrassed. Um, if you are truly ashamed of something, it's not something, if I said to you, okay, all of you, I want you to think of your most embarrassing moment. Sometimes you do this as an icebreaker, you know, at the marriage retreat or whatever you say. Tell, tell us of your most embarrassing moment. I've got a pretty embarrassing moment. I've got a pretty... I'll tell it to you someday. And then people are like, I've got one, I've got one. And um, that's not actually your most embarrassing moment then, right? Because you're willing to share it. The, most, the thing that you're most ashamed of is something that you would never share in public, ever. 
under any circumstances. And if it did get sh shared in public, you would leave and move to a different town or something. That's, the, that's what shame is. And you never want Jesus to feel that way about you. I'm ashamed of you. I'm denying you. And who does he do that with? Only the people that are ashamed of him. Only the people that are denying him. Being ashamed of Jesus is when you are reluctant to volunteer information about Christ to people who need that information. Because you're ashamed of him. You're embarrassed for people to find out that you're a Christian. You don't want that associated with your reputation. Can you think of somebody in the New Testament who was ashamed of Jesus at a very critical moment? Say it again. Yeah, Peter. Absolutely. Peter. The, Peter, the same Peter who says, I will, I will never leave you. Even if they all abandon you, I will die. I'm willing to die. And then a little slave girl says... Don't I know you? Aren't you with the, uh, with the, Nazareth, the guy that's being um, questioned right now? And Peter says, well, I don't know the man. He's ashamed of Jesus. He's embarrassed. He's afraid. He doesn't want to be associated with him in that particular moment. You know, a couple hours earlier, he was like, I'm willing to die for you. But in this moment, this is now dangerous. I don't know the man. You might say, I, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't deny Jesus. That's good. But Jesus expands it a little in verse 26, doesn't he? He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words. See, sometimes it's not as explicit as, are you a Christian? If you are, you're going you're gonna to get in trouble right now. Yes, I'm a Christian. I'm willing to... Sometimes it's not that overt. Sometimes it's just, you're in the coffee room at work, the break room, having coffee, and the people are talking about some hot topic in the news that Christians have a very specific opinion about because of what the Bible teaches, and you sip your coffee and walk the other way. Why? Because you're embarrassed of his words. You're not embarrassed of Jesus, but what he says in his Bible, I don't want to bring that up right now. <laughs> I mean, I'll talk about that all day long with my Bible study group. I'll even teach an equipping hour class on it, I'll talk about it at the home group in my home and my family and devotions. I just don't want to talk about it at work because, well, I'm ashamed of Jesus' words is the real reason. If you weren't ashamed of his words, you'd be talking about his words. You'd say, well, the Bible says this. Scripture says this. God says this in his word. You know what they're going to think of you? Whatever, that you're a bigot, that you're old-fashioned, that you're delusional, that you believe this old book. They might say that you're hateful. They might call you transphobic. They might come up with all sorts of names. And that's not pleasant. Nobody wants that. So just keep Jesus' words to yourself. Don't share them and everything will be fine. The problem is, everything will be fine. You'll have a wonderful life. The problem is, Jesus says, if you're a true disciple, you will not be ashamed of me or my words. So how do I know if I'm a true disciple? There's a test for you. There it is. You know what it feels like when your kid gets to that age where they don't want you to hold their hand in public anymore? 
you know, there's so often you're walking with your little kid and you just stick your hand out and they just put their hand in. It's just such a precious thing and, and you know you gotta, you gotta, you gotta savor it because it's not gonna be there when they're like, you know, 17 or whatever. And then you try to do that, I don't know what age it is with different, sometimes the genders are a little bit different to their, the dad's like, the boy's like, dad, don't have my hand. It's high school, you know, whatever. <laughs> don't kiss me, dad, in front of my friends. <laughs> you understand that. And it stings a little, but you get it. I mean, I, I don't want to hold my dad's hand in front of my friends either, okay? That's, that's fine, we understand that. But imagine you overheard your son saying to his friends, Oh, that's not my dad. No, my dad's way cooler than that loser. How would you feel then? See, that's a denial of association. And yet we do that with our Savior. When we deny being associated with him because we want to be cool in the eyes of the other people that we're around. And Jesus and his words and his views and what he teaches and what he wants of us, that's not cool right now. Because there's in-season and out-of-season through history. At the moment, we're in a kind of an out-of-season point. Right now, Jesus isn't the cool kid on the block in suburbia. He isn't Mr. Popularity. But when he returns, in the blazing light of his glory and holiness with the ten thousands upon thousands of angels to judge the living and the dead and destroy the wicked forever, that's when you'll want to be associated with him. That's when he's the cool kid on the block. But the problem is then it's too late. It's too, you don't get to make up your mind on that day. He says in verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father and his holy angels. It's too late then. You've already picked whose team you're on at that point. Some people say, well, I, I would never deny Jesus or his words. I just don't think that words are always necessary in order to represent Jesus. I, I subscribe to what Francis of Assisi said, you know, I always preach the gospel when necessary, I use words. Friends, you, you, it's always necessary to use words. It's one thing for people to think that you're kind, that you're loving, just like they think that the Buddhist down the road is kind and loving, and that the nun is very sweet and kind and loving. Unless you've ever been to a Catholic school, and you know those nuns can be mean. But um, you, there's lots of people out there that are kind and sweet and loving and respectful and generous and serving who aren't Christians. You need to talk about Jesus for people to meet Jesus and to be saved. Acts chapter 4, 12, there's only one name under heaven by which man must be saved. The name of Jesus Christ. So every true disciple will have a public proclamation, a profession of Christianity. Even the thief on the cross, given his little, little period of time, he stuck up for Jesus. So, your homework this week is pray for an opportunity. Pray for an opportunity to be bold for your Savior. Not just for the sake of getting into trouble, but to share the, the Savior with somebody who he died for. You don't know who's elect. You don't know who's saved, who needs to be saved out there, or who's going to repent. I've told you this a, a lot of times in my own testimony, that at the time that I eventually got saved, I went back to my high school friends who I then knew were believers, and I said, how come you never shared the gospel with me? The first time I heard the gospel, I got saved. 
said, we thought you were too Catholic. Basically, they thought I was beyond hope. And then I hear the gospel once and get saved. Well, that's how God works. So look for an opportunity and, and present the gospel. You never know when you're going to be speaking to somebody who will be a brother or sisters of, you, of yours for eternity because you get to share Jesus with them. Don't be ashamed. Now, if you're here and you're, you feel like I've blown it, I can think of so many times this very week, my entire career, people don't even know that I'm a Christian. There's hope for you. Even Peter, who denied the Lord three times and three separate occasions, repented. He realized when he heard the rooster crowing, he realized what, what he had done. And he wept. And he repented. And you see his repentance so vividly because in Acts chapter 2, he preaches the first sermon and he preaches in front of thousands of people declaring that he does know the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was just executed, and declares him to be alive. Now there's a little conclusion here in verse 27. I tell you truly, there are some standing here, Jesus said to his disciples standing right there, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And this is a verse that um, the theological position of preterism loves. Preterists love this verse. They believe that the kingdom of God has already come, that Jesus has already returned, and they say it must have happened in their lifetime, they think it happened at 70 AD. So if you want to know how to refute them or to be sure that you haven't missed the end of the world, you need to come back in four weeks' time when I'm back from Israel and I'll tell you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this reminder. It really is a challenge, Lord, for, for all of us. I know all of us here feel that we let you down at times. Lord Jesus, that we deny you by our silence, sometimes even by our words and our actions in front of others, our neglect of you in our lives. But we, we repent of that, Lord, and we confess to you we're, we're feeble and we're so thankful that our salvation doesn't depend on our performance in these areas, but our salvation depends on what you did for us in Calvary. But because we love you, Lord, we want to live for you. We are willing to die for you. We want to share the good news of what you did for us with others. And so I pray for an opportunity this week, even as I travel in the weeks to come, opportunities to talk about you and what you did to those who don't know you yet, whatever the consequences. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Tom's probably thinking, just don't, necessarily do it at a border crossing in Israel to Palestine or Jordan. But that's a cool way to go, right? That's a cool way to be executed. Anyone have any questions? Yes, Brandy. Yes. What a great question. Yeah, so Brandy's asking, um, I mentioned that there's different systems of sharing the gospel, different methods that people have taught. Is there one that I prefer, or should it be taken case by case? Um, very good question. Uh, so the, the general answer is case by case, depending on what kind of relationship you have with the person you're talking and how long you have. 
as a, as a general backbone of a gospel presentation, my favorite is the Romans Road. I've taught that here, the Romans Road class. I think they're, they're available online if you want to go through that. It's like a four-week class where the Romans Road is just um, a few milestones through the book of Romans that teaches the bad news that we're all sinners and need to be saved and the good news that Jesus came and what that meant and what a changed life looks like. And so you, you just... It's easy to memorize because it's all in one book. And my first little Bible, I had a little pocket Bible I would carry with me. And in, in the front cover, I would write the little Romans road. And even to this day in my Bibles, at each verse, I write the next verse. So I only have to find the first one, um, 3.23. And then, uh, well, 3.10, and then 3.23, and then 6.1. And it, you eventually, memor- you eventually in, in, end up memorizing it. But you, you can start there. So then what I'll do is... If I have more time with the person, I'll just, in my mind, I'm going through the Romans road. Bad news, good news, and then the job section, you know, what it looks like to change. And, uh, and I'll try to put in as many different other scriptures under the bad news, as many scriptures under the good news, many scriptures under changed life and repentance that I can think of. But if you've got the elevator pitch, then, I, I mean, I can just say, you know, Jesus lived the perfect life, the life you could never live. And he died the death that you deserved. And he rose again to conquer it so that if you put your faith in him and repent of your sins, you can live forever. Okay, bye. You know? (laughs) Okay, I got it out there. If the person knows what that means, they can be saved. Uh, Usually they won't know what all that means. And so you need to unpack it and explain it. But yeah, good good question. Um, But by case by case, you kind of want to look at your relationship with the person. If I know I'm going to have an ongoing relationship, I work with the person. He's a waiter at my job and we often have shifts that overlap. I might plant a seed. I might ask a question, build that relationship of trust. Usually evangelism works best based on relationships of trust and friendship um, and service, if you can serve them in some way. Some people love just going out on the street and just preaching cold turkey. I've, I've done that too. It doesn't work for me. Um, no one's ever repented that I know of, but at least I've heard the gospel that day. But for me personally, it works best if, if I have a relationship with someone. Good. Yes, sir. Life's on mission. Is that what it's called? And it's an app. I didn't. I didn't know about that one. I haven't heard of that. So that's an app. Three Circles Evangelism, it's also called. Okay, well, there you go. I mean, if you Google these, there's lots of different ones online, and there isn't one that's like the silver bullet. Um, you know, when in Africa, often you, you share it with that little the wristband that has the beads. You know, the black bead is sin, and then the red bead is the blood of Jesus, and the white bead is justification, and the yellow bead is glorification, and the, oh, the green bead before that is um, sanctification and growing. So anything that you can use just to have like a little order to go through will be helpful. Good. Any other questions? Yes, Corinne. Okay. So Corinne's asking about how people sometimes use this verse to distinguish between a believer, how it applies differently to a believer and a disciple. Okay, so if, if I'm thinking what you're asking, there is a movement in Christianity 
where some people teach that there's kind of two stages to your discipleship. And one is just believing in Jesus, and then you're saved. But you're not actually following him, you're not actually obeying him. And then there's, you kind of get to the next level where you make Jesus your Lord. So the first step is you accept Jesus as your Savior, trusting in him, and then you're saved, and yeah, you're going to go to heaven. And then later in life, you might become more committed, and then you accept Jesus as your Lord, or you make Jesus your Lord, and that's when you actually start going to church and reading your Bible and repenting of sin and obeying. Is that what you're asking about? Yeah, the, the movement. Yeah, so... Um, it's called the free grace movement. Um, it's kind of the, the, the opposite of that or the counterpart to that would be lordship, the lordship salvation movement, which is what I believe the Bible teaches. And this is the verse I think I would go to to prove my point. This is the main verse I would go to to prove my point, is that Jesus says, if you're going, anyone who wants to come after me must be willing to do these things, including follow me, um, obey me. And so I just, I just think that's an illegitimate concept that Jesus can be your savior, but not your Lord. You just don't see that in scripture. It's just nowhere in scripture. In fact, the scriptures point the exact opposite direction. It's like First uh, John chapter 2, verse 3 says, by this we know we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. So how do you know that you're even a Christian or a disciple, uh, I mean, a, a believer, if you keep his commandments? So how do I know I'm a believer if I'm a disciple? Those aren't two separate categories. They're the same category. Believers and disciples are the same unit. You can't split those into two. Now, the reason people like that system is because it lets their kids, it lets them feel like their kids are saved when they aren't. And parents are sometimes more concerned about wanting to think their kids are saved so that they feel good. They're actually more concerned about that than their kids' souls. And so you'll see this in like schools that try to promote baptism, you know, Christian schools that want as many kids baptized, or they'll, they'll have like a little camp for the kids, and we're all going to, who wants to be baptized? Anyone want to be baptized? Because in their mind, you go through baptism, you get the kid just to say once, yes, I love Jesus, Jesus is my heart, yay, there's my pine cone, and then, whew, now my, my child's a believer, they're baptized. Yeah, they grow up to be, you know, whatever, transgender drug dealing axe murderer that's okay they accepted jesus when they were nine they got baptized yay maybe one day we'll just pray that they make jesus their lord as well and it's just unbiblical and then the parent then that kid dies while he's busy axe murdering someone and cop shoots him and they're like well at least he's in heaven now now finally jesus is lord it's like no he's not you've done all of that just so that you felt better about your kid so anyway don't get me started that's why i try to promote not promote, I try, to del I try to help parents think carefully through whether or not to baptize their children too young. Because it's true that children can be saved, and if they can, they, they can be baptized, but baptism goes very closely in hand with church discipline. You're baptized into the church, you're disciplined out of the church. So your child is ready to be baptized when your child is ready to be disciplined for unrepentant sin. And that might be at a young age. But this whole idea of, let's just get you baptized in case. It's terrible, because how many testimonies do you hear where I was baptized at a young age, but then I got saved later, and now I want to get baptized again? Yeah, I could ask for a show of hands. It's like the South. Um, <laughs> people, <laughs> everybody, I mean, and it's just, it's just confusing. Yes, Don.
Okay. Oh, no, okay, that's not, so let me clarify then. Okay, so um, Don, okay, so let me just clarify uh, what I just said about you're baptized into the church. So there's the concept of the universal church, and then there's a local church. So when you're saved, the, the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the universal church of all the saints of all the ages. And that's something that happens spiritually. That's not like, that's, that's not the process, that's not a, there's no water involved. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is when you are regenerate, you become a believer, you place your faith in Christ, you have a new heart, the Spirit comes in, you are placed into the, the church universal, whether you're in a local church or not. Like the thief on the cross. Um, then there's a different concept, the one I was talking about, is a local church. And when a person becomes a believer, the general pattern in Scripture, yes, there's exceptions like the thief on the cross who doesn't get baptized and the Ethiopian eunuch who doesn't get baptized into a church. But the general pattern of scripture is that a Christian is baptized under the auspices of others who have checked their profession and are vouching for their profession. So usually the leaders of a church. And so you would be baptized into the community of that local church. Um, and those are, that's a descriptive pattern it's not necessarily, like we, we would do a baptism of a person um, and they wouldn't necessarily become a member of our church. But usually that would happen. If you're being baptized, it's to become a member of the church. And then when you move to another church, you don't have to be rebaptized. So if you came to our church from another church and you had been baptized, you wouldn't have to be rebaptized. Is that bringing some clarity to what I said? Which church? The universal church, okay. Yes, I w hopefully it doesn't happen way before you get wet that you become baptized. Yeah, once you're saved, your first step of obedience is to be baptized. And sometimes that's the same day. Um, in our culture, I think there's, it's wise to have at least a meeting with a pastor or elder in the church to help you see if you are saved, if you understand what you're in, because nowadays it's kind of easy to call yourself a Christian, nobody's gonna chop your head off. So a lot of people can just say that. So you kind of want to have a meeting with somebody and it can wait, it can wait weeks, you know. We're gonna be doing a baptism pretty soon and I'm in Israel and I really want to do the baptism, so we're gonna wait three weeks, you know, thank you. Um, it's not like you're not saved until I get back from Israel. <laughs> but the idea is you don't want to put off baptism indefinitely. Like, I know I'm a believer, but I just don't want to be baptized yet. Good, good questions. Yes, Garner. That's a great question. What, is it, what does the word blessed mean? Um, what does it, as a Christian, truly mean to be blessed? Because in our, in our culture, we often throw, oh, I feel blessed today, or you use the word blessing quite diversely. Say a blessing over a meal. Bless you. You sneezed, you know, whatever. Um, okay, so before I answer that, let me just tell you, I'm going to promote a little 
YouTube channel that is absolutely brilliant called The Bible Project. And we, we watch it every night with our kids. It's just like, it's like five, six minutes. It's cartoon art. But the guys that do it, it's these two young guys, I think they have like PhDs in Hebrew or something. They're so brilliant and they're so good at explaining concepts in a way that children can understand. And it's very technical stuff, uh, you know, Hebrew stuff usually. And they have one on the word blessing, where they go through all the different uses of the word blessing in the Bible and what it means. And when I was watching it, I was like, it's more complicated than I thought. Um, <laughs> but to, to, because sometimes blessing is, is related to a, a wish that you have for a person. Sometimes blessing is a description. Sometimes blessing is something you do, something you receive. So it, it is actually a very more complicated, nuanced concept than I can probably do without preparing tonight. I know that's not the answer you wanted. Let me think if I have a short answer for this. Well, I would say at least, uh, at least it's got the, the, the idea of the concept that God is granting favor as opposed to judgment. And so when we pronounce a blessing at the end of the service, you know, Tyler gets up here and says the benediction, he's wishing um, for you and proclaiming upon you the desire that we as your leaders have that God would deal favorably with you that week. I don't know. Does any of that help at all? Go watch the Bible Project and come back with another question. Um, <laughs> good. Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah, Deb. No, no, you're right. Um, what Deb's saying is that the action of the, the action of blessing God goes beyond just saying the words, because that's something I didn't mention. Is blessing is not only something you receive from God; a blessing is something you can wish for God. Um, Psalm 103, verse one: "Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits." Um, so we need to bless God. Pronounce that blessing. The desire for for his glory to be manifest in him. And we also pronounce that blessing on each other, that the desire that God's glory would be manifest in us. And then God also does bless us by manifesting his glory in us and through us and for us. And then, of course, when Jesus says, you know, blessed are the poor or whatever, he just means happy. They're in a state of favor and happy happiness and um, joy and peace with God, you know, it's like, it's a very, very rich concept.